gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, your irreverent and occasionally erudite guide to the plays of William Shakespeare. In today's episode, Heath Ledger outdoes Shakespeare in what might be a satire, but is probably just an exercise in misogyny. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. And this is Bardflies, episode two, the maiming of the taming of the shrew. Can we focus on me for a second, please? I am the only girl in school who's not dating. Oh, no, you're not. Your sister doesn't date. And I don't intend to. And why is that again? Have you seen the unwashed miscreants that go to that school? Where did you come from? Planet loser? As opposed to planet, look at me, look at me. (laughs) Okay, here's how we solve this one. Old rule out. New rule. Bianca can date. When she does. Will, can you give us a plot summary for this travesty? I sure can, James. The play opens with a framing device. A drunk named Christopher Sly is the victim of a prank by a nobleman who tricks Sly into thinking that Sly is a lord and performs a play to distract him from the fact that he is not. If you're wondering whether this makes much sense, dear listener, I assure you it does not, a point to which we will later return. At any rate, the play within a play being performed for Sly is The Taming of the Shrew, which tells the story of several lords and ladies in Padua, the city-state in Italy. The titular shrew is Caterina, or Kate, the truculent and strong-willed daughter of local Lord Baptista Minola, and the elder sister of the much more desirable Bianca, who has a number of suitors, but cannot marry until Kate gets hitched. There are a number of suitors who want to marry Bianca, so they all collude to find Kate a husband, including two gentlemen named Hortensio and Gremio. Two new arrivals accelerate the plot. Lucentio, a student, falls in love with Bianca and presents himself as a tutor so he can get close to Bianca without her dad knowing about it, while Petruchio, a lord on hard times who is set out to party, get married, and get paid, gets recruited by Hortensio as a potential husband for Kate to open up the opportunity for them to all try and marry Bianca. Petruchio also assumes a false name and gets hired as a music tutor for Kate. He then proceeds to use reverse psychology to win Kate over. Kate, who is constantly threatening to insult and slap around people, accepts Petruchio because of his skillful repartee and unflappability in the face of her shrewish qualities. Kate and Petruchio get married, but not before a disastrous wedding, where Petruchio shows up, drinks the communion wine, and gets into fisticuffs with the priest. Petruchio goes home to Verona and starts taming Kate by starving her and denying her clothing and gaslighting her by disagreeing with everything she says. Up is down, black is white, the sun is the moon, and vice versa. Eventually, Kate's will is broken, and she thinks everything is the opposite of what it actually is. Meanwhile, Lucentio's manservant, Tranio, disguises himself as Lucentio and gets into a bidding war over Bianca's hand in marriage. He wins, but is committed the real Lucentio to much more than he can possibly pay, which means that someone will have to pass himself off as Lucentio's father, Vincentio, to seal the deal by committing to pay the dowry. They hire a guy off the street to do this. But then, the real Vincentio shows up in Padua, just as his imposter pleads his case to Bianca's father, Baptista. An iota of hilarity ensues, and Lucentio reveals himself, and the marriage is blessed. At the end of the play, all of the newly married couples sit down to dinner, and the men get into an argument about which one of them has the most tamed wife. Petruchio, knowing that the men still think of Kate as quarrelsome, bets heavily on himself and wins big with Kate making a speech at the end of the play on why women should obey their husbands. Just really charming stuff there. Would you agree that Lucentio is sort of the, to the degree that there's a romantic hero, that it's Lucentio? Uh, I think that's right. I mean, I think that his relationship and efforts to woo Bianca received the most time 
And to the degree you can really say such a thing in this play, I think Bianca is perhaps the most interested or, you know, her affection is the most reciprocal with him. Uh, and ultimately he... Yeah, and he's the most sympathetic, yes, and he, he ulti- I think. Or he's portrayed as the most that's, sympathetic. Yeah, that's right. And he ultimately ends up with her in the end. So I think Shakespeare's tipping his hand a little bit there as to how you're supposed right. to view this. And then uh, the other clarification... Um, the issue with Kate in terms of her needing to get married before Bianca is that she is sort of has this rep of being extremely difficult and basically, as far as I could tell, kind of mean to people. Yes. I mean, and we'll get to this, but she um, she doles out some physical punishment. She's often threatening to cuff people, meaning sort of slap them around. Uh, and she does, in fact, hit a number of the characters in the play. Uh, so, yes, I think right. and she's sort of verbally she's very sharp tongued. Uh, which actually leads to some of the actual enjoyable parts of this play. She doesn't really get along or play nicely with others, which makes her an intriguing figure in this universe. Okay, and in fact, Petruchio, as I recall, is actually... Hortensio first sort of jokingly asks him if he would go after Kate, and then, like, warns him against it, right? So that's sort of the the grounding of the play. Um, that's right, but as we will discuss, Petruchio is a gold digger, so we can we can right. go into yes. into detail. Okay. In that Let me later. give a little bit of background for our listeners about marriage in Tudor England, because I, I don't think that this play really makes sense without an understanding of how marriage worked. So the the crucial thing I think that needs to be understood about uh, marriage in Tudor England, and I think Renaissance Europe more generally. Uh, in order to understand this play, is that marriage was more of a business or dynastic arrangement than a romantic decision. So rather than being boy and girl fall in love and then get married and live happily ever after, it's much more boy and girl need to sort of secure their future or financial security and their parents arrange a marriage for them to do that. So the goal was much more to enhance and maintain the wealth and social position of the families involved and of the individuals than it was to guarantee romantic happiness. So it's more like political alliances than a modern day marriage. And you sort of see that in Taming Taming the Shrew, like in Act 2, Scene 1, when Baptista is basically negotiating with Gremio and Tranio about Bianca's dowry with sort of the goal being, you know, who can guarantee Bianca the best future? And, you know, on that note, I think it's important to sort of recognize that while this sounds all quite medieval and cynical, you know, the the parents, you know, would be trying to make the best possible arrangement for their children. It's not like this was totally cold-blooded. It was as much about saying, you know, Little little Bianca needs to be taken care of, so how are we going to do that? And also crucial to understand in this is that women were viewed basically, or not not were viewed as, women were literally treated as the property and charges of their first their fathers and then their husbands. So on that, anything you want to add to that, Will? Uh, no, I can save it for the, the back and okay. forth. So my first topic that I want to talk about is what on earth Christopher Sly is doing in this play. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty obvious, which is that we have this whole framing device of 
Christopher Sly, the drunkard who the Lord decides to dress up as another Lord and, you know, try to trick him into thinking that he's been basically dreaming for the last, what is it, 15 years or something. And then, Mm -hmm. and then it's just forgotten about. So I I have some thoughts about this, but Will, what do you, what do you think? Is there, is there a way to make sense of Christopher Sly as a character? So... There's a, a couple of different uh, possibilities here. The um, answer can be no, to be clear. <laughs> yes. So I think the answer is probably no, James, to your point. I think, simply put, Shakespeare probably got more absorbed in writing the play within the play as opposed to the framing device and just figured, ah, it's fine if they have it at the beginning and we don't resolve this at all. Now, I know that in um, some performances, there is a sort of bookend section where Christopher Sly returns and more or less says, wow, thanks to this play, I know how to tame my shrewish wife. But that is not in the text that you know most people are reading of it, and it's not in, I think, most performances of it. So there's, there's a case in which you know, Shakespeare might have been trying to do that and he forgot to put it in at the end or just decided it wasn't really necessary or worth it. And then I think there's a little bit more of a, um, you know, academic interpretation that this is somehow a window into the artifice of drama and its role in, you know, commenting Mm -hmm. on art and life and how the play within the play is some sort of commentary on that. And I think those ideas might be true more so in later play within a play constructs. I'm not so sure considering that it feels kind of incomplete that it is the same here. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I'm largely in agreement with you. Um, The only thing I would add is, Will, did you see uh, Yesterday by any chance? Uh, No, I did not. Are you you familiar with what the movie is? Yes, I am familiar with what it is. Right. So, okay. So for our listeners who don't know, Yesterday is a movie that came out earlier this year. That's about, basically the conceit of the movie is that there is a musician who wakes up one day and discovers that everyone else in the world has forgotten about the Beatles. Uh, you know, has forgotten that the Beatles existed. And so he sort of starts to make a career by writing and releasing the songs of the Beatles. So I, I kind of uh, see a bit of a parallel here in, the, you know, I feel like Shakespeare started off being interested in this idea of creating a new reality. And then, you, you know, and like sort of had this thematic idea of like well what would happen if someone woke up and everything was changed like would they trust their own memories or would they you know or would they think that they actually were crazy you know and that they'd made all this stuff up and actually the, the world that is being pre- presented to them is the real world I, I don't know by the way I, I mean who knows if if i'm correct that that's what he started out wanting to do um but regardless i agree that it seems like he if that was what he wanted to do, he quickly got too absorbed in what was going on in his fictional uh, Padua than mm. with Christopher Sly. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I couldn't figure it out. And I, I don't, I guess my biggest question about it is I don't understand why, why this was ever left in at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like why? Yeah. I mean, I assume there are performances that just omit it entirely. Yes. Um, I mean, and this is a heavily edited play in performance for reasons we shall discuss. Yeah. You know, partially because the content of it is frankly pretty misogynistic. So there's efforts to sort of revise it in ways 
you know, that make it more, you know, compatible with 20th and 21st century and probably 19th century for that matter, uh, views of the world. But there's also, you know, the possibility of directors and dramaturgs just saying, you know, it's not really worth including this framing device that's just going to confuse people. And I think that's a pretty commonly done decision or commonly made decision. So moving on my second topic, and I think this is a little bit of a richer ground is, well, so basically as I was reading the play, personally, I found the, like the plot of the play to be more or less incomprehensible. Like it's just, there's so many things in it that either don't, don't make sense or are just like intensely objectionable, both in terms of the way the, you know, the way that the marriage contracts and the wooing proceeds in the play. And then also, of course, the even more glaring aspect of Petruchio's treatment of Kate. And I was sort of wondering if the way to read it is that this is a satire about the, about Shakespeare's perception of marriage practices that he thinks are absurd rather than as a true romantic comedy in the mold of his first play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. What do you think about this? Yeah, so I actually think um, I actually think the idea that this is a farce of sort of marriage practices and customs is, I, I buy it, you know? And I also think um, there's an important element here about how there is a clear collision between sort of sentiment and the idea of romantic love, which is kind of coming into its own during this period of history. And this mm-hmm. sort of marriage practice is oriented around property and sort of negotiation and basically treating treating women and their dowries as objects in the marriage market. And I think these two things kind of exist at the same time. Uh, and Kate's a fairly free-spirited character. Even though she's tamed, quote-unquote, at the end, I think there's an element of the way Shakespeare writes this that sort of indicates the women are people and they are participating in, you know, some pretty crazy uh, scenarios with some not especially, uh, you know, he does, none of the none of the men receive particularly flattering portrayals in this play, I would say. I mean, I don't know that anyone in the play does. You know, Lucentio and Bianca maybe are somewhat sympathetic perhaps more accurately they're the least objectionable mm-hmm. but every everything in the play just is gross yes no you, you know like yeah. I, I mean even starting with lucentio's deciding that he can't just approach baptista i mean honestly one of the like right off the bat one of the things that i was most confused by in the play is like why does lucentio feel like he needs to change clothes with tranio so that he can then go be bianca's tutor when clearly there's a bunch of people who are already have a sorry who have already approached Baptista about trying to arrange a marriage so and and of course Lucentio has it's not like Lucentio doesn't have the social position or the wealth that Baptista wants for the husband of Bianca right so like that didn't make sense you know Petruchio's incredibly mercenary approach to what he's doing right like the what does he say uh, if wealthily, then happily wed, yes, or something like that. Yes, yeah. You know, it, 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 to you know, to the way Baptista is sort of talking about his daughter as being impossible and not impossible. I mean, I think he has much worse words about Kate than than that. To 
uh, who is it? it Gremio is the the older suitor, right? Or who? Or no, Hortensio, who marries the widow, right? Who basically uh, is like, uh, it's too difficult. I'm just going to go marry this widow who's into me because that's easier, right? It, it's everyone comes off badly. And Gremio sort of drops off the the map basically in the final section of the play, but he's the sort of elderly suitor who is wooing Bianca. Uh, and he's also a bit of a, kind of a bit of a joke, you know? I mean, these guys are sort of talking about uh, how many galleons full of gold they can supply and what their houses are like. And they, they sort of come across as kind of ridiculous figures, honestly, even though there's a basis in truth of like, how are they going to provide for Bianca? That would have been asked in real life. But but this sort of, um, the most charitable interpretation of this play, which I don't think really warrants it, is it's a satire of marriage customs, almost in the manner of Jane Austen, where ultimately the mm-hmm. customs are sort of reaffirmed at the end, but the absurdity is commented upon and demonstrated by the author and the character's behavior repeatedly. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is all pure speculation, but, but with both... With both the last play we read, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and this play, I find myself wanting to look beyond the text of the play into what is happening in Shakespeare's life because they, they feel like plays that are about problems that the author is experiencing, mm. right? And, you know, knowing, and like knowing that Shakespeare was married young to an older woman that presumably had to do with her being pregnant and like whatever unhappiness there might have been there, not that there necessarily was, but it's easy to read these plays and sort of see that in the action on stage. Mm. Obviously, again, I'm like reading that into it, but but it feels plausible to me that, you know, that this is the work of a man who is bitter about marriage. Yes, I think that that is a fair reading. I mean, so the other the other side of this, right, is, and this is sort of the low comedy approach of the play. I think we've described sort of how we as people reading Shakespeare in the 21st century and perhaps sort of how Shakespeare, you know, you, you've laid out how we might see it, how Shakespeare might have seen it and what sort of led him, you know, down this road to, to maybe write this play. Then there's also just like the low comedy aspect of it, which is like, there's a lot of like nasty verbal repartee in this play. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like the taming of the shrew is meant to be sort of comedic watching this like truculent Harridan be tamed probably would have been amusing to um, audiences that are watching this and like not in a, oh, we're so sophisticated kind of laughing at our own foibles sort of way it's sort of like when you see when you have friends like when i was in high school like my buddies and i would all watch like american psycho uh or the Mm -hmm. goodfellas and you know when you're like 15 or 16 and watching those things with a bunch of your uh you know let's be honest male friends you're like oh my god like this is amazing it's like an action movie there are so many gangsters and like or you know in the case of american psycho it's like a serial killer and like just outrageous behavior and you're like oh wait actually these these movies are meant to comment on maybe something a little bit more than that but they can be watched in a very surface level that is still nonetheless entertaining and kind of seductive and amusing. And you don't actually have to go through all of the sort of like intellectualized explanations of the play. Now, of course, you know, saying that, I don't think it really translates very well today when you're reading this. I mean, there's like 
straight up reprehensible behavior like throughout it's true but i think will i think you get at a really good point which is you know we want to intellectualize it because it's shakespeare but actually this is like this strain of mean-spirited humor i think actually does very much exist still uh you know did you ever see um bruno uh yes yes i mean i think of bruno because that's like to me, the most extreme example of it. But, like, I hated that movie, and a lot of the reason that I hated the movie was because it was... I just thought it was mean, you know? It wasn't... You know, whatever point he was trying to make, it was done in, like, this very crass, cruel way. And people are, you know... There is obviously an audience for that, and I think that's what this play gets at as well. I'm not trying to intellectualize it. I think, actually, it's a huge problem. You know, it's something I really dislike about the play. Yeah, I I agree. And I think you can, you know, and obviously Bruno involves sort of Sacha Baron Cohen setting up real people to kind of take the fall uh, in situations he's constructed to make them kind of look bad. Uh, And in some cases Mm -hmm. they might deserve it, but in many cases probably not, right? I think almost another example that I give is some of Woody Allen's portrayals of kind of the foils for the his stand-ins in all of his movies, where they're shown to be, whether it's the father-in-law in Midnight in Paris or some of the characters in um, Annie Hall, who are just portrayed to be like, like basically not real humans, you know, who are the sort of conservative or unhip or not very smart uh, foil to the very witty central character. Uh, And that's obviously coming at it at a high level and sort of the Borat Bruno is coming at it at a more kind of crass kind of level. But there is a sort of like, there is this tendency in art today for sure. Yeah, and and Woody Allen is actually also a great example because Woody Allen is a, like I I tend to not like his movies for exactly that reason. Um, (laughs) the The last thing on my list was I wanted to talk about the relationships between the masters and the servants because I I guess because I see a shift in the way this is treated from Two Gentlemen of Verona to this play where in Two Gentlemen of Verona to the degree that we even really saw interactions between the servants and the masters who tended to be sort of in completely different worlds they were very adversarial or you know is Lance getting beat up by Proteus or you know whatever whereas in this play particularly in the Lucentio, Tranio, Biondello relationship, the relationship between the masters and the servants seems to be much more collegial and close, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Lucentio, I think, refers to Tranio. I don't remember the exact words, but basically calls him his best friend. And Tranio is all on board in helping Lucentio to, you know, in his plan to woo Bianca. And I wasn't sure if that sort of changed portrayal had to do with just the needs of the plot in terms of, Mm. you know, the plot needs Lucentio to be able to dress up as a tutor to teach Bianca, and therefore Tranio has to be on board with his plan. Or do we see a movement in the way that Shakespeare is sort of conceiving of those relationships? Mm. I think there's something, there's definitely something there, you know? I, I, I like how the servants are treated as kind of their own actors in some ways and are not just constantly portrayed as, as kind of comedic relief. Uh, for everything that's going on. I mean, I think that that can work, but uh, in this case, 
it's almost more interesting for what it says about maybe the people who are watching the play and how they would have understood it in some in some respects because uh, there's mm-hmm. definitely a tradition in drama of the kind of wise or sort of uh, clever commoner and the kind of daft nobleman but even just portraying the you know without even making the nobleman look too bad by portraying the servants as actually capable of kind of playing at the nobleman's game, there's there's an interesting kind of commentary there, I think, that's going on, that the mass audience of this play uh, at some public playhouse might have appreciated. And mm-hmm. it sort of, it lends a little bit of humor to the whole endeavor because you're watching these sort of nobles kind of try and outdo each other with their incredibly elaborate schemes, but you're also seeing the, the regular, uh, the common man sort of servants vying with one another and kind of engaging and playing at the same high level the noblemen are capable of doing uh, and I, you know that's that's kind of interesting to me and, and they don't they don't disappear into as you put it sort of the separate worlds of these sort of interstitial comedic scenes like they're there almost throughout right and there's no uh, there's no yeah. chasing after the dog either which is which is kind of a, a difference as well <laughs> that's right although there are i did notice there are dogs in the play uh, in the with the Lord at the beginning, he talks a lot about his do- his hunting dogs. Oh, that's true. Um, <laughs> though, though that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I also this just felt like a little bit of a more sophisticated portrayal to me. I think because you know, I, definitely like working in Hollywood, you start off as an assistant, which is you know not unlike being one of these manservants. I think it's sort of the same basic relationship and. You, you know, you're both in an adversarial relationship with your boss and in a very close and intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And maybe this plays a little bit too much on the other extreme from Two Gentlemen of Verona, but it feels like it's a little bit more of a sophisticated presentation of how those relationships work. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Okay, that, that, those were my elements. Uh, I, you had a couple things you wanted to touch on as well. So um, one of the reasons so. one of the reasons I didn't particularly care for this play beyond the kind of general nastiness of it is the plotting doesn't make any sense. And I don't mean necessarily, strictly speaking, in terms of like what happens. I mean more in the sense that what should be the central action and is the actual title of the play seems to occur without much conflict very early on in the play. Petruchio basically drags Kate to the altar, gets into sort of a spat with the priest, but marries her anyway, and uh, rides off with her and then proceeds to break her will, you know, on and off stage. And meanwhile, there's a sort of like effort to woo Bianca by all of the suitors who eventually recuse themselves. Like Hortensio, as you pointed out earlier, kind of backs out uh, and says, ah, oh, it's just too much work. And you go through, you go through this, and it's um, it's like the things that should be dramatic aren't particularly dramatic. The pacing doesn't really make any sense. Uh, what did you think of that when you were reading? I I had a similar reaction. I, I mean, I was I found myself reading along and just feeling like the plot logic was totally incomprehensible, uh, and it was it was very frustrating for me because that is, and I, I have to admit my own bias here, like. I am always zeroed in on like what I perceive to be logical fallacies or you know narrative failures in plot logic. Mm-hmm. And there was so much in this play that just didn't make sense to me in that regard. For instance, as we talked about earlier, why does Lucentio need to dress up as the tutor instead of approaching Baptista directly, right? Why does Petruchio leap into this thing with 
uh, with Kate without really so much as a conversation or being like, are there other options out there? You know, like what, what, what could I do? So yeah, and even you know, towards the end of the play, I just got more and more frustrated and more like more and more irritated with it because there was just no rhyme or reason I felt like to what I was seeing on the page. I, I was also a little bit frustrated or irritated because I couldn't figure out what people were viewing as being so bad about Kate. Like everything that is negative about her is sort of reported. And like, while we see her being kind of sharp tongued and she, I, I guess what I mean is we don't really get to see that in action at the beginning of the play. It's not established, which kind of makes everything that comes after it feel, I think a little bit unearned maybe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that like oddly when she's allowed to do things in the play, she's one of the more vivacious characters on stage. Uh, she's got opinions. She doesn't really want to kowtow to anyone. And yeah, you can see why sort of her having a sharp tongue might irritate uh, and make her less marriageable in the universe of the play. But it doesn't really seem to warrant her being treated as a shrew, quote unquote, let alone starved and denied clothing in an effort to break her, which is what happens in the, yeah. in the last act of the play. And I, I really couldn't figure out if Petruchio actually is supposed to be in love with her or if it's all posturing because he certainly represents that he does but you know we also know that Petruchio is only out for money I don't know I, I I feel like there I feel like there is a version of the play where Petruchio is really attracted to quote difficult women end quote and like that's a farcical version that maybe would be funnier but that's not how it's written. Yes. So regardless of what you think of that as a way to approach it, it's not what's on the page anyways. So I don't know if that really addresses what you're talking about necessarily. I don't know if I've answered your question head on. No, but, it's, um, yeah, it's some combination of plotting and characterization and the things that are supposed to be sort of the centerpieces of the play seem to occur and be dispensed with quite quickly. Uh, everything gets kind of tied up very neatly without actually much real conflict. I, mean, I think a question I always uh, think about whenever I'm watching a movie, and particularly like rom-coms, where there's often a need to generate some sort of conflict about why two characters can't be together. Like, y you should often ask yourself when you're watching that, is there any reason why these people can't be together? You know, in the case of the sort of elaborate schemes and sort of mistaken identities, swapped identities. It's like, there's no real reason for most of that. It's like, why can't these guys just like honestly uh, negotiate with Bianca's father? And um, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe there's some case that they need to like woo her personally. And maybe that's going to be like the X factor that that gets them the prize, quote unquote. But uh, there's a yeah. certain there's a certain degree of like, most of this just doesn't really seem terribly necessary, and therefore it's hard to generate real conflict from it, and therefore it's hard to make it really compelling drama or comedy yeah. or whatever this is supposed to be. <laughs> Satire. Yes, yes. <laughs> or something. 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 Okay, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we get to my most favorite part of this podcast? No, we're, we're good. Let's, let's roll. All right, so here is my scalding hot take and this this doubles as our legacy section for our, for our listeners my scalding hot take about this play is that the film 
Ten Things I Hate About You, starring Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles, is the version of this story that Shakespeare was trying and failing to write. I.e., Ten Things I Hate About You is the highest artistic expression of this play. What say you? I think that's probably right. I think this is turning... You know, you might be giving Shakespeare too, maybe a little too much authorial credit um, for for intending it to be quite so good. Uh, but I honestly think the 10 Things I Hate About You is probably that or Kiss Me, Kate, which is the other, you know, Cole Porter musical, the most famous sort of adaptation of this perhaps before the internet generation. These are the highest ways to realize the uh, the potential of this play, which maybe the potential is not particularly high, but if you're going to do it, you know, do it like 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when I, when I rewatched the movie in advance of this, I was watching it and it's like every narrative problem that the play has, <laughs> the movie finds the right way to balance, right? So like, you know, what we were just talking about, right? Like, you know, why is Kate perceived as such a shrew? Why does she behave in this way? And in the movie, it's like, oh, we actually get to see like what the, like this emotional vulnerability that she has. Um, or the fundamental conflict between Petruchio and Kate, right? Like we, where Petruchio in the play is just a, basically a gold digging asshole. Mm. The Heath Ledger character has, you know, an actual moral arc where he starts out doing it for money and then, and then finds out that he's actually falling in love with this character, you know, and it's just much more interesting and more dynamic. And, you know, and I think that's also reflected a little bit in the, the relationship between the Bianca and Lucentio analogs in it as well, where that relationship, you know, Bianca has to sort of grow up a little bit. And the, I don't remember what his name is in the movie. Cameron in the movie is Lucentio in the play uh, sort of needs to grow up a little bit as well. So, and, and the result is a very feel good story. Whereas this play, I think at least for me left me with a real, bad taste in my mouth yeah definitely especially the um the sort of bet over whose wife is most obedient at the end it's just kind of adding extra insult to injury uh just kind of humiliating in a way that just doesn't feel good well yeah should we should we talk for a minute about abusive relationships i mean this is like the way that the way that petruchio treats kate I mean, first of all, is I, I don't I don't know quite where where to begin. Monstrous, right? like, monstrous is a good word for it. Um. <laughs> yeah, but let like let's start with the fact that Kate never actually does anything to Petruchio, right? So like even the idea of the taming of the shrew of the title feels a little bit false to me because like what has Kate ever done to Petruchio to to deserve this? Um, mm. And but even. Even if she had been cruel to him in some way, like that doesn't justify the way that he behaves in any way. I mean, he's he's both physically and emotionally and verbally abusive. I think um, maybe not verbally. I, I guess it's more because it's more of a gaslighting thing, right, than it is a directly attacking mm. her. But right, he starves her. There's the thing with the tailor, and like I, I couldn't tell if the idea was that he was like trying to be so outrageous that it would shock her into being sensible or something. Anyway, uh, just more more about, that's, I guess, more <laughs> stuff about why I didn't really like this play. All right, moving to the uh, 
Moving to the new section that we're introducing for this podcast, power rankings. We have so far only read two plays, Will. Where would you place this play as compared with the last play we read and the only other play we read, The Two Gentlemen of Verona? <laughs> this, oh, boy. This this is, is, is this uh, reverse Sophie's this is choice? Do I really have to make a choice uh, situations? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, all right. I'd say it's a bit of a wash. Uh, I think I like... God, even saying that I like one over the other is bad. Where do I place this in the overall rankings? Taming of the Shrew. Better dialogue, better repartee, but generally just odious and kind of gross throughout in terms of kind of the subtext and everything else. Two gentlemen, like not not very well written per se, but until you get to like the uh, the sort of rape threat at the end, kind of tolerable, if inexplicable and just bad. I have to say, I think I'd put Taming of the Shrew slightly lower than Two Gentlemen, much as it pains me to say. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think in, and the difference for me being that I feel like in Two Gentlemen, I actually feel sympathetic to most of the characters. You know, all three of Julia, Sylvia, and Valentine, I basically feel good about. And I also like the fact that the play has a clear villain. I don't like the way that it resolves, but, you know, I kind of love to hate Proteus. Whereas Taming of the Shrew, I'm like, all everything about it just makes me queasy, you know? I mean, like, Proteus is at least an interesting character to sort of analyze, and he makes, like, a decision that does drive the action of the play, right? Yeah. Whereas in Taming the Shrew, it's not clear, like, why most of this stuff is happening apart from the need for Shakespeare to formulate a plot. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Okay, male characters. In this play, we have, I think, basically three uh, or maybe four Four, if you want to include Hortensio, which I don't feel strongly about either way. We, but we have four four major male characters who are Petruchio, Lucentio, Tranio, and Hortensio. And then in our last play, we had two being Valentine and Proteus. How do you rank the male characters we've experienced so far? And hang uh, on, overall? I'm actually going to open up a spreadsheet so we can keep track of this. This is this is good. Okay, so what would I say about the characters? I mean, Valentine, I think, is at the top, just in terms of not really being objectionable. Maybe not being the most interesting, but certainly being um, good-hearted and not morally execrable. Proteus is like got to be somewhere near the bottom. I actually think he may be a worse person than Petruchio, but it's pretty close. I mean, like. Let's not define, you know, let's let's not define deviancy down here. Or yeah. Anything. Like, you know, they're, they're both really bad. The rest of them, I don't really actually have particularly strong feelings about. I think the servants in Taming of the Shrew are slightly more, they're less colorful, but they're more enjoyable to, like, watch kind of hustling in some ways. Or at least you, you sort of appreciate them more as people. Whereas the, the servants in, um, like, Launce and Speed in uh, Two Gentlemen are kind of... You know, mostly just meant as comic relief. So I don't know. It's it's a bit of a wash there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think I would. Yeah, I would probably have Valentine. Actually, you know what? I probably upset of the year. I would probably have Lucentio first, then Valentine, um, Petruchio, and Proteus towards the bottom. And then for female characters, same thing. We have four. We basically have four female characters to talk about right now, right? We have we have Sylvia, Julia, Catherine, and Bianca. 
so in this case, um, gotta go with, uh, oh, this, this is another, another tough, uh, situation, I guess simply because they, they have, um, maybe personalities that are a little bit more sketched out and appear to be sort of the stronger women of the bunch. I'd have to say like Sylvia and Kate tied, maybe Sylvia at the top and then, um, and then Bianca and then Julia, but that's largely because Julia is sort of not given much to do other than kind of pine. Mm -hmm. I, I think Julia also loses a lot of esteem in my eyes for, for her love of Proteus. <laughs> <laughs> and for her sticking to her love for Proteus, who, you know, is as we've as we've discussed many times, is a garbage person. Yes, just like straight trash. Yeah. Um, I also I would probably put it for for the male characters, I would probably put Lance third of the characters we've mm. we've met so far. So I would go Lucentio, Valentine, Lance, one, two, three, and then some order of other characters, and then I think I actually would put Proteus above Petruchio just because I feel like I get and enjoy reading Proteus more than Petruchio who I just find so objectionable. I mean yeah like who is like isn't Petruchio the kind of guy that like he basically secures Kate's hand in marriage and then he shows up like underdressed for his own wedding and i mean th you know he pours wine on the priest he's just kind of a dirtbag so I, I get that okay and I, will that's it for our for our outline here what are you reading or watching what one book or one movie one book or one movie uh so i am in the third book of philip Kerr's berlin noir trilogy um, which feature his detective in pre-World War II through post-World War II Germany, Bernie Gunter. And it's great. It's just like noir of this detective uh, kind of grappling and trying to navigate and survive during sort of the Nazi rise to power through kind of the post-war period. And, you know, it's, it's a entertaining, sad, you know, pretty grisly, uh, and just really well-written detective fiction with an eye towards history. Cool. What about you, James? What are you reading or watching? I just finished... I just... Actually, actually these go together. I, I just both finished reading and then watched the film adaptation of uh, The Age of Innocence, the Edith Wharton novel, which was recommended to me. I hadn't... My only previous experience with Wharton was reading Ethan Frome in seventh grade, which was a scarring experience. But I was like, sort of recommended this as like, hey, no, like she's great. You should check it out. So I read it. I, I don't, I really did not enjoy the film adaptation, which is the Martin Scorsese, Daniel Day-Lewis, Winona Ryder um, mm. film from, I think, 93. The book I did enjoy, but I'm still kind of trying to figure out what I think it's trying to tell me. So... You know, I, I I would recommend it, but it's it's a little, it's I'm still sort of thinking about the themes and the plot and the way that it goes. And there's there's stuff that I really like in it, and then I think I kind of did not like the ending so much. Um, mm. So, and that's our show. Next time we'll be talking about Shakespeare's first history play, Henry the Sixth, Part One. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.